Well, thank you for coming this afternoon to the discussion on disability and the Millennium Development Goals, a call to action. Um, there are so many sessions here at this conference, and it's just wonderful that you are starting the conference uh, looking at the Millennium Development Goals as well as disability. I think what is very important is that every person deserves the chance to reach his or her full potential. So um, in this session, my hope would be uh, for those of you who may be already on working internationally or in some disadvantaged areas in the United States or in your own practices, um, that there may be ways to think of how we can prevent these type of things. And also, if the person has one disability, does not mean they can't have another disability, and frequently they are excluded from other preventive strategies just because they have a disability. So it makes us very aware that it could be for any of us. I think for any of the students, it is something that as I, I'm going to highlight for you things that are new, the newest strategies, the newest approaches, that if you're working um, internationally already, you might want to introduce some of these areas uh, in many parts of the world now, the uh, governments of the different countries are taking over many activities that used to be in the hospitals where you serve. Uh, so there may be some new initiatives that you may wish to be involved in. As for myself, I was um, before, like in the American Canadians, it was the Canadian equivalent of the Peace Corps in Burundi, Africa. That's before medical school. And even today, the income in Burundi is $260 per person per year is the GDP. It's the second poorest country in the world. So I lived there on the level of the people, and I hitchhiked across Afri half of Africa during the summertime. So I went from Dar es Salaam to uh, Kinshasa. And then what impressed me was that everybody was dying for nothing, which is why I chose to go into medical school. And I always say it's a miracle that I ever got accepted to medical school. Um, but one of the first things was um, I also had a girl guide company, the first one in rural Burundi, and we took the students to... Um, the hospital, and behind was the leprosy area. So from the very beginning, before medical school, I was very aware of the lives of people with disability that were not as good even as the other people in a country that was not poor. And subsequent to that, my areas um, are infectious diseases, tropical medicine, um, and also pediatrics. But I think when we're looking at this, we've got all of the clinical aspects. But a different dimension is when I did my Master's of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, I think it gives us a very big perspective on how we can prevent. Uh, because if we can prevent certain things, it makes a very big difference for our work and the quality of lives. So I hope during this presentation um, I will highlight some of the major points and then at the end we have time for discussion because some of you may very well have good experience yourselves in some of those areas. So we'd like to know about the Millennium Development Goals, the prevention, and also a focus today on violence um, causing and resulting from disability. That's getting a higher priority uh, when we look at disability. Um, we're very conscious always talking about deaths, but right now we have had the deaths of kids under five, but it may mean that we're getting more children surviving who might previously have died, and many of those children because of birth may also have disabilities and handicaps later. 
Um, and especially newborns can die, and even pregnant women, uh, uh, the numbers are lower, but a lot of women die in pregnancy, which means that children are motherless. I, when I first became a physician, I worked in Canada's north among the Inuit and the Indians, and this is one of our lovely Christmas cards. So in Canada's north, we love our children with the polar bears, and also, if you're down in the south with the crocodiles, you also love your children. So I think wherever we are, we would like our child to be alive and to survive and also to thrive. And I'll put some things in from different other countries because you also then can go online for the countries you're at to also know there's other um, documents that might be also translated into English for you or into the other language. Um, you also, uh, for childhood, want it to play. This is in Malawi, the kids playing. Um, and also kids with disability, this is Bangladesh, um, where they also need to play. However, too often the children die, and this is really important because in some countries they're more than half the population, but overall they're 100% of our future. So we really do need to focus and say yes to children. The Millennium Development Goals were developed and were um, endorsed by the United Nations. Um, progress towards a world fit for children, and each of the national governments, interestingly, um, they signed it to say they would do it, and they actually judged them every five years for progress. The uh, ones that we'll cover briefly today is, number one, about eradicating extreme poverty, but also the hunger, the implications of hunger and disability, universal education, primary school, um, gender equality, reducing child mortality, and that's going to be a challenge, but giving you some new cost-effective ways that will make a difference. Um, and especially about the environmental sustainability, global partnerships. I'm not going to particularly discuss maternal health here today, but if the mother dies in pregnancy, um, the children are mostly dead by the time they're two years of age. So it's very important to reduce that. Also with HIV AIDS, um, that is a big problem for adults, but for children, a small part of death. But as we talk about um, potentially the orphanages with AIDS orphans and things like that, the implications for some of the lacks um, can be important. What was very, very interesting is that they realized, the disability community realized, that disability is missing in the Millennium Development Goals. They have all the talk, but nothing there. So... What did they do? They went on the rights approach. And so I think for us, as people interested in health, there is the clinical care of the person, prevention and treatment, but there's also the rights approach. And so they looked at the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability. And then they just went backwards to the Convention on the Rights of the Child because the Convention on the Rights of the Child, endorsed by all of the world's countries, governments except one, um, are for all children, and it is non-discrimination, the best interest of the child, the right to life, survival, and development, and respect for the views of the child. So this is how disability, in a way, has come in to uh, focus for the Millennium Development Goals and is actually a strong focus at the moment because it was missed. So what about the Convention on the Rights of the Child that might result in disability or kids with disability may have more problems? First of all, they apply to all children. And these were in the orphanages in Romania uh, where the kid with no name. If the kids are abandoned, nobody cares for them, they probably will not develop as well. 
The families are really important. I think we need, this is in Australia, um, are you the parent or caregiver of a child with a disability? So there may be special things to resources to help parents with disability. And this is where, in Bangladesh where I was recently. And uh, there is a father with his little type with disability. This is in China, which I thought was very interesting because um, they have foster mothers taking care of children also with disabilities. So even in the urban areas where it's sometimes more difficult when these kids are abandoned, um, there are strategies to make a difference. So family important. The other thing that's really important and I think gives us really grounds for thought is about universal access to education in the convention. At least 80% of children complete primary school. Now think how smart you were when you finished primary school, but that's not the point. There is a big focus on early childhood development and disability. This also can be important with HIV orphans too because their parents might be dead, but there's a big focus. And I put you the documents that you can download from the web. Um, the, um, and it's very important. This is in Toronto in Canada. Where do daycare kids end up? Top of the class study shows. So daycare is really important for um, some of the kids. This year, the annual UNICEF State of the World's Children is focused on children with disabilities. They always address a topic that is important but has been marginalized. And therefore, this brings it into the dominant focus, and you can download the document or read it online at the UNICEF website. And there you see the one kid there uh, with his uh, crutches uh, going to school. This shows you the little child who's also at school, and she's learning how to use the computer and how enthused she is. This, though, shows you the primary school completion rate uh, with or without disabilities. And what you see is a significant difference both with boys and girls who complete even grade three at school. And if a child has a disability, it's really important they get their education because they may not be able to work in the fields or do manual labor. Um, and that's also very important uh, for the other students. This, I thought, was very interesting from the State of the World's Children. They looked at why the children with disabilities weren't going to secondary school. And the major reason was the parents thought the child couldn't study at school. So it wasn't the fact that school refused them, or it wasn't the fact of whatever. It was mostly that the parents and other people thought they shouldn't go to school. So we have to be very careful there that we encourage someone with a disability, we encourage them to get more education. Another area is in terms of child labor, because if the kids aren't in school, um, they might be in workforce. And also, um, the work might be disadvantaged. Several years ago, I volunteered at the Anger Hospital for Children in Siem Reap, Cambodia, which is an amazing institution. And this was in the Nom Pam Post. And these kids are six years old working in the brick factory. So you could just see how they could get injured. Uh, and so child labor is something we need to be careful about because if they get injured, they have more troubles um, with other problems. Another area that we have been ahead of, if you wish, which is bad to say, in Canada and the United States is now our focus on abused and neglected children uh, because we've actually stopped deaths from many other causes. So there is this focus. But these kids are virtually invisible. Um, there is a study in the Lancet in December last year, December 15th, which was very interesting as you're looking in your priorities for how to be involved in the future. 
It looked at age-specific and sex-specific mortality in 187 countries, and actually there's quite a shift in the burden of diseases and the priority diseases. This can be important because if you looked, it was interpersonal violence that increased by 34%. So if we are, uh, like the deaths from pneumonia went down, the deaths from diarrhea went down, the maternal deaths went down, but the violence is going up. So what can we do to prevent it and also manage? And let us look at a couple of points of violence that can be important. Child abuse, um, including sexual exploitation. Now, there is always a triangle of the child. What's special about the child? The agent, like how come, to, and like who does it, and the environment. And to be fair, I think any child could get abused, and it might be that anybody who's here could be an abused person, given the situation. But there's certain kids who got more likelihood to be abused. Um, it might be somebody doesn't want them in the first place. Um, they can't afford them. But... Um, if they have a disability, they may have more vulnerability, especially if they can't speak uh, and communicate, to, and also to not just abuse but neglect. Here is a delightful child, I think, who has Down syndrome, who is beautifully pounding the drums. And, however, this is in the Canadian press recently, or in our press, the couple paced possible eviction after noise complaint for child with autism. So if you're living in an apartment building, like, what happens? Like, what are we going to do? Like, we could say this kid may be a high risk, and what are we going to do um, to help his family? So stress can be important. This one is just recently in Canada, in Oshawa, just outside of Toronto, a city. It's reeling after a family received a type letter filled with vitriol that says the family should euthanize their autistic son. So it's not something that's a physical obvious disability, but, you know, the implications of this can be a big deal, and that can make a difference uh, to the families. Then there's also the other kind of abuse we were all familiar with, unfortunately, strapping and beating kids. This is a sad little tyke who somebody threw hot coffee at him because he bothered them, and he got burnt so badly. This is a kid who got beat up. Uh, with blood, and then you get brain hemorrhages as well from the abuse. Like, what kid deserves that for what they did? And this one, I thought, was particularly sadistic, where apparently the man, could have been a woman, but in this case it was a man, and he was smoking a cigarette, and then he had the kid on his lap, and he took the baby, and he twisted the legs till they broke. And so what you can see here, because six-month-old babies don't break their own legs, um, you could just see here that you can cause fractures. So we have to be so careful when kids come in with injuries, like what is intentional. I'm always so worried about street children, street teens, because just think if they go to sleep at night, they could easily get raped. They could get murdered um, just because nobody wants them and there's a big problem. So, again, when we're looking at abuse, it's not just the types of abuse, but the groups that maybe we can reflect on, like what programs can we introduce? How can we help them to be involved so that, therefore, um, good things happen to them? Um, in Canada and the United States, certainly reporting child abuse and neglect is a legal requirement. But that is not the case in many other countries. In um, Bangladesh they might, or India, they might throw acid in the face of somebody, and you know how very disfiguring that can be as well. 
So that is something that the adult generally has to do to make a problem for disability. The other area is injury prevention. They used to call it accidents, but now they call it injury because they say most of it is preventable. And I think this is an area we could make quite a bit of difference in. Um, they're preventable, and there's always a big focus about road traffic accidents. I'll just show you some pictures. When I was recently working in Bangladesh, I mean, this was normal. You had all these people on the tops of the buses, and the roads actually were very good, which surprised me, but, you know, oh, my God, how did they stay on? And this was in Cambodia. I do not know how this woman kept that gorgeous little baby on the back of her bicycle, and also she didn't fall off either. And uh, so that's a problem. Then you get these scenarios. The whole family's on the bike, and you can just see how the dad's so happy with everything. And this was also where, just across the street where I stayed in Cambodia. And so you got the whole family on a motorcycle with no helmets. You got the chickens and the pigs and the cows. But the point is that even there, it's sort of the way they were advertising um, so much joy. So there has some ways that we might look and see how we can encourage uh, some safety. Uh, this um, also can be a problem with spinal cord injuries. In Bangladesh, for example, uh, a big problem with spinal cord injuries, and if you do get a spinal cord injury, then you're paralyzed below the waist. You can't void well. You might get urinary tract infections. There's not all the resources available. So frequently you die within the year from infection. So um, for men or women or children, um, climbing the trees to get the uh, can be a problem. This cute little kid was in Tenwick Hospital when I was there, and uh, she had broken both of her legs and she fell. And there was rocks in the in the weight at the bottom, so the kids used to take the rocks up and down for her traction all day. But she was lucky; she didn't get a long-term disability. I think depending on where you're working. It also can make a difference to uh, what is the major cause of injuries. And the, uh, in the Asia, interestingly, it was drowning. So when I was just out, one day I went out doing clinics in Bangladesh, and what surprised me then, it was during the rainy season. The rainy season was just coming. But the areas outside your house may, in the dry season have been great. You could have played all the time. But during the rainy season, they're all full of water. So the kid goes out to play and drowns. And half of the kids who might, who survive from drowning might be disabled. So again, um, and what's the simple strategy for this? I think this is wonderful. You know, just teach them how to swim. And so you can save a lot. I think there's about 33,000 of the kids in that country died a year from drowning. I thought maybe with the monsoons it would be higher. Uh, but there's a lot. But just teach the kids how to swim. Um, and that's something that students could do. It's something your group could do. It's something you can interact with the school, with the groups, um, and give them something uh, to actually do. Also be careful that you include kids who have a disability uh, so they also learn the strategies. This is from UNICEF, and just it's for China, but it could also be for other countries, depending on where you're working. And they also provide you with interesting, um, well-done um, points on injury prevention. I show you this one only because it's also in Chinese and English. Uh, but, you know, the countries themselves have got it. So always look at what the government has. And if the government doesn't have it, what does the World Health Organization have? What does UNICEF have? Um, I find UNICEF's website is very, very good. And you can also go on a country website for UNICEF um, and download their publications. 
This was for reading, because again, if you're teaching adults or people who haven't been to school how to read, they have to learn with a reader for something. And I think it's often very good to choose health reasons to, for your first reader. Uh, so this was about uh, this little type where they were the pots in the middle of the floor, and then if they kid polish them over, the kid could get scalded. And obviously, if somebody has a seizure and falls into the fire in the middle of the floor, um, then they could certainly die. And this was in Kenya, where they had the raised fireplaces, which was very good, because then all they had to do was just change the technology, which was simple mud fireplace. So then, if the kid, by chance, crawled into it or fell into it, the whole thing isn't open. It's actually much safer for the person. So there's some very simple things a family can do uh, to make a difference. I'll show you some Canadian ones. This is one of our cowboys, but you have cowboys in the United States too. And we're saying, don't lassoo the pots with the handles outside the stove. Put the handles inside, and then we won't get scalding. So that's the kind of thing we have for the parents. And if they don't speak English or French as first languages in Canada, then, you know, they can hopefully get the information. We used to have those neat um, walkers where the kids could roll, but unfortunately they'd roll right down the basement, and they either died or got head injuries. Uh, so they're now illegal in Canada. So we modified a product. We, they could sell them if they didn't have wheels, but who wanted to buy them? And um, so that was another, and this is another one about falls. This can actually be quite important now when more people are living in apartment buildings. Because if there's stairs in your own house, it's one thing. But if you're got, living in an apartment building, you know, how can you put gates on the stairs? And if somebody leaves the door open or something. So again, health education, how you're going to do it can be important. I think a whole big area, which could have been on its own merits, is the impact of humanitarian disasters and war. This is huge when we're talking about disability, um, prevention, but what about kids and, adults and adolescents with disability at that time? Because, again, we know displacement increases vulnerability, and that increases the burden of disease. If, during the monsoon season, everything is flooded... And then people are up on the roofs of their houses trying to escape. How does somebody get somebody there who might have a significant disability? Like, how do they stay up? The other important point might be that their wheelchair, for example, was very hard to come by. But they got this wonderful chair. But then it disappears on them. Uh, so there has not been a focus on the impact of, dis of disability in a disaster, and that's starting to become more prominent because we've addressed other issues. So um, just reflect on that. This was during the war in Europe, in Kosovo, and this was having war babies left to die. All of the healthcare group, they, they ran away from this institution for the handicapped kids because they, didn't, they were in the wrong group. So they just left them, abandoned them. And then a military group came in to rescue them and abuse them. So again, in these disasters, you have to be so careful um, that people think of these people, children, and what to do. This was very, very sad in um, Liberia and Sierra Leone, where you had, where do you want, chop or chop, chop? They just chopped off limbs. Um, and then the long term is, what do you do when you've only, if you survive was a miracle, but what do you do when you only have, and there's not a lot of artificial arms for that. So that's very, very sad. That's actually one reason they call them blood diamonds, not just for the deaths, but also for all of these disabilities um, that can be caused by human action, specifically against kids.
Also in war, um, and this could be some of our inner cities as well. You don't even have to go somewhere else. Um, but this was in the European conflict also. The kid got shot. And so if you've got a bullet in your head, then that is not good. So you will not necessarily be the same person you were uh, before you were injured unless you were Malala, who had an amazing recovery from Pakistan recently. Uh, but that is a problem. If landmines, so people that are interested in advocacy or if it's in their groups, advocacy, landmines can be a big problem. This was in Gulu in Uganda. And you could just see that some of these landmines just look like toys. And the kids bend down to get them, and then they're close, and then they just um, explode in their faces. This was in uh, Handicap International in um, Cambodia, and he went outside the fence at lunchtime, and then he also was um, injured by a landmine. So, again, things that humans put can make a significant difference in kids, and so, again, we need to be very careful for war. This was in Vietnam, in the Children's Museum in Vietnam, and um, I actually, the War Museum, and I actually went in and bought these postcards, this is a postcard set. I thought they were very happy um, because, you know, you saw the beautiful kites and everybody looks really happy, but interestingly, uh, what's underneath this is so much psychological distress. And so I'm involved very much in Canada with immigrants and refugees. And we've actually just done a document that's online, uh, Children and Youth New to Canada, which is focusing on immigrant refugee children. And so many of these children may have had psychological problems coming into Canada or potentially the United States and also in other countries because of what happened before and their cultures and things. So I think we also, in addition to physical problems with disability, also have to reflect on the psychological dimensions as well. And afterwards, what they have found, this is during the, um, this is during the problems with the earthquakes in China, um, if the kids could go back to school and go back to play, that certainly helped their mental health. But if kids get disability and they're not in it, what does that do to them? So just to reflect here on some of the implications, because a life without violence is our right. So I think we have especially looked about um, some of the areas in terms of education um, as well for um, the Millennium Development Goals. The last one to mention briefly is about um, disasters. And another that I think is going to be coming more to the fore is about environmental disasters. Like there was a recent article about Brazil with all of these different chemicals. And in Bangladesh, there was a problem with arsenic in the wells. So, you know, what does that do long-term? So, you know, lead in different areas. So I think we're going to hear more about environmental um, areas that might impact pregnancy and also development. So those areas are important. The other big area is about reducing child mortality. So for many years, the focus had been to prevent deaths. And now the focus is also the ones who are alive we hope are going to thrive. I wasn't aware until recently the big impact of malnutrition. Like we always saw pictures about malnourished kids. Um, but that's sad. But there is huge amount of malnutrition, and it's an area that we might use some innovative strategies in our practices that might make a very simple and expensive ways to go. 
What has been found is that if they're malnourished, they may not also be getting stimulation, and that also can impact their mental development, um, even if they did go to school. So you want to be cautious there that you don't forget and just focus on the feeding. Now, a big push, and this highlights a lot of things when you're looking at international priorities. They focus on everybody should do this. It's a very simple strategy. This is what we should do. Well, that's not necessarily the case, but there's a big big point about um, improving nutrition, especially breastfeeding. But what do you do if kids got cleft lips or cleft palates? So, you know, reflect always, and I think that's been one of our strengths over the years when we've been involved in different activities. We always look at the ones who are the most disadvantaged, the most in need, not necessarily the richest people, the poorest people, but, you know, we're looking at the people in need. This is a problem. So if you're going to have Operation Smile or something about cleft palates repair, it can be quite important for nutrition. And again, after six months when breastfeeding is not enough, what do you do? Like, I think that some of the mothers or fathers who have children with disability are real saints. They're unheralded saints. Because how long does it sometimes take them to feed their children? So that's so important uh, for, uh, for that as well. And another concern, and I, found, I learned this in one of the countries I was recently in, is the families are ashamed of the kids with disability. They hide them. They blame the mother. Um, they think she should be killed too. So, you know, these kids are not being taken to the healthcare system to be weighed in the regular way. So what I think is really good is, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Child to Child. This is a British um, Child to Child. It's superb because what they do is they involve the kids in school. And I think in Burundi we had nothing, so we used to use a lot with the kids. Um, but they could go out to the village, and then they could identify with this simple arm band. If it's in the green, it's okay, but if it's in red, they're danger. Bring all the kids in from the village who have the red, and that is a very simple, fun way for the kids, plus they learn, to identify the most malnourished in your community. So with your limited resources, if you're going to target certain people, um, then that might be fine. A Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, uses those armbands as often some of their fundraising tools. But they're very simple. And also, the kids can make them in class and so they learn something. And then they can go out, and that is a way to identify the kids who do need more. And this was in Bangladesh, and this is the BRAC system, which is very good, and the kids are all getting their lunch. But if the kids with disability are not going to school... They're also not accessing this. So there's just some ways we can reflect on being inclusive. The other is about uh, food is not enough because of the micronutrients initiative. I think it's a tragedy that you are blind for life because you didn't have vitamin A, and it costs 10 cents a year. So two five-cent capsules a year can prevent blindness, can prevent pneumonia deaths. So, again, a very simple intervention that we can also make sure when the governments or ourselves are doing it, that we also look at other kids with disability who can benefit. I think what's also interesting in some areas with iodine deficiency disorder, that that is actually the most common preventable cause of mental retardation in kids. So, you know, iodine is the salt. Like, what are you going to do? Simple. So, therefore, you don't have to see the people have a disability because there's a strategy that you're using uh, to make a difference. Anemia, we have learned, can also impact on mental development and also energy, so those are quite useful as well. This is 
I think, a very, very good initiative that you might be interested in for a lot of reasons, including any outreach you're doing in community health projects. It's called Scaling Up Nutrition, or SUN. Scaling Up Nutrition, there's a website. Um, it's UNICEF, WHO. It's one of the international ones. And what they figured is that by scaling up the simple strategies we just talked about now related to nutrition, you could actually save almost a million lives a year. But most important, I think, in a different way, is you could decrease the number of kids who are stunted and developed, um, maybe have problems with development, by 33 million. So just including these people. But be cautious. Just because you are short does not mean you are stunted. Just be very careful about that. So, you know, just be cautious. Anyway, I say that because I'm so short. Um, also, though, when you're doing this, and they're doing it into the communities, it's a very good project, um, is be careful that the kids with disabilities are also included. Another area that's important, uh, because nutrition's in the family, is what about disease? And where there's water and sanitation, and this is a big problem I learned about sanitation in urban areas, because with all the people coming in around the center, they didn't build latrines. Like, how do you do that if there's a 1,000 people in this apartment building? So there may be, and a lot of little kids put their hands on, but if you've got a disability, you might tend to put your hands on the ground more likely and longer, and then you might get ascaris. And in some centers, some countries actually have excellent programs, and here the kids were all queuing up to get vitamin A and deworming tablets. Very good initiative. Actually, Bangladesh has been at the forefront for a lot of things for preventing mortality. Um, but where's the kids with disability? So again, just think, um, okay, let's make sure that those kids are also included in those areas. I think a difficulty when we're looking at a different dimension is about acute disease. Because many kids are dying in the world from acute disease like pneumonia with or without a disability, but hypoxia can also result in brain damage. And this was looking at UNICEF in 2012, and what they found is in the world only 60% of kids under five with pneumonia even go to a healthcare system. This is one of the best um, clinics I've seen in my life. It was from the Anger Hospital of Children, uh, for Children in San Brie. But this was just the opening at the triage. And yet, at the end of the day, all these kids were seen. But in many other centers, when I was just recently away, they had advertised free clinics, which was a bad deal because they didn't provide drugs. They had like 400 people there for the day. But you can't. They didn't have the resources to do it. So, again, people are not going to bother wasting their time to go because they may not go. And if they go, the drugs might be there today but not tomorrow. This whole deal about resistant organisms can be a big deal because of costing for that as well. Um, and also, this is a new addition that some of you might be very pleased with from the World Health Organization. It's just come out. The Pocketbook of Hospital Care for Children, the second edition. Very, very practical. You can download it. You can buy it at low cost, and it is very, very good. Um, but, again, if people have disability, like is she going to be able to be cared for if she gets bad pneumonia because she's got some muscle disorder? And this is another publication which I think is very useful for you to go in the Lancet series. They're free. There are superb series on the Lancet related to maternal and child health. And they're freely downloadable. And this one showed interventions that could eliminate 95% of diarrhea and 60% of pneumonia deaths. So very clean and areas for that. 
I think what's really, really exciting um, just recently is what's new about vaccines, because we know about the vaccines, um, and so many deaths have been prevented with diphtheria, tetanus, whooping cough, and measles. Because if you don't get measles and brain damage and you survive, then you've got much more chance of developing in school. If you get polio and you're a male, that can be a problem um, when you're trying to work later if you've only got one leg and working in the fields. But what I recently learned is that if it is a female, nobody wants to marry her. So young people with disabilities, when to become young adults, nobody wants them. Um, and in a society where that happens, that can be quite significant. So there's a very um, big point for that. Measles is important for prevention. I think this is exciting because the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine is now $3.50 a dose um, from the UNICEF. And it prevents pneumonia. It prevents ear infections. It prevents meningitis. So at $3.50 a dose, that can make a huge difference. It also prevents deafness. And also then in some centers, you wouldn't need cochlear implants. So there's a huge deal for that. I thought you'd like to see this one because what you're seeing here is in the United States, it costs like $100 a dose for the pneumococcal vaccine. But they're doing a double strategy. So for the poorer countries, it's $3.50 a dose. And similarly, for the rotavirus vaccine, $2.50 a dose instead of $88. Also, they're looking at that um, for hep B vaccine and also for the human papillomavirus vaccine. So the costing, as of a few months ago, has dramatically reduced. So I think when you're working internationally, you also have advocacy with the government. And maybe they're not aware of it as well. And they can also get external funding from UNICEF, in other words. So this would be a neat way, I think, through encouraging further vaccination uh, to make a difference. The other thing that I think is quite interesting is looking at how you could prevent them, kids getting infected in utero. And so there is a big strategy now with the World Health Organization to immunize the people before they get pregnant against rubella. So they're now doing a two-dose measles strategy, not one, two which worries me because then obviously one dose wasn't enough. But with the second one, they're getting measles rubella. So therefore, that would hopefully prevent congenital rubella syndrome, which also gives us cataracts, mental retardation. Uh, so there's some points here about how they're now looking at how the impact in utero makes a big difference long term. Malaria is a big deal, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and again, it can cause brain damage with cerebral malaria. And in Malawi, that was a big problem during the, during the hunger season, but then in the rainy season then. But what happens is they don't have blood transfusion, so the kids might die. But that can give them a problem. And so make sure everybody in those areas are hopefully under insecticide-treated nets, a very simple strategy. And also, we haven't even mentioned any of the neglected tropical diseases. Uh, Peter Hotez is an American. He just started an international university in the States for global health. He is really good. This is a very good book. It doesn't give you good guidance for how you should treat people, but just makes you aware of the um, causes and it called forgotten people, forgotten diseases. This was from China, and it was a study on disability because most countries do not have access to data. That's a problem. And what you're seeing here is the group that received the service, which is in green, and the group that didn't receive the service and needed it. And what you do see here is a very big difference 
uh, between uh, the needs and the services provided. And they may actually be doing better in China than many other parts of the world. So again, we have to get data. That's also, if you're doing research projects, you need a data center source for that. The last point to mention, because this is a huge deal, I think, in terms of the newborns, there's a call to, Child Survival Call to Action is another excellent website for you. Child Survival Call to Action with a lot of excellent resources. And so it's looking at, this is a Nepalese mother and her baby. Um, but it's actually looking at four low-cost approaches that can save over a million newborns' lives every year. And it focuses, because I think you're all familiar how you could use injectable antibiotics to treat newborn sepsis and pneumonia, but I think this one is very, very interesting. Um, you can put chlorhexidine on the cord of the baby, either ointment or liquid, chlorhexidine, and that has significantly reduced newborn mortality from sepsis because the cord goes, um, you know, if it's open, then the germs can go right in. So something simple like chlorhexidine uh, is very important. Steroids, I was surprised actually in Bangladesh they knew about the steroids for mothers, so to prevent, um, you know, to provide um, the babies and prevent respiratory distress syndrome. And then I'll just mention briefly about the um, newborn resuscitation strategy. So there's four very simple, low-cost alternatives that can make a big difference, not only to deaths, but also hopefully to disability. This is just a kid who's getting his IV antibiotics, which is a problem because they're not always available. This is a cord, and this is a chlorhexidine. But it hasn't been widely available. When I go to a different country, I always go to the pharmacies on the street to see what I can buy and see how much they cost. Now. So they didn't have this yet in Bangladesh, but it's, um, it's, it's quite neat. And it should be in the village pharmacies. So when they're doing their birth kits, this is something they could buy, and it could make a big difference. Um, in terms of trauma or birth asphyxia, um, there might be deaths, but the other big worry is disability and then all of the points about finances and community costs and loss of productivity. I think for newborn survival, you're probably all familiar with newborn resuscitation programs. You probably did them when you were in medical school, nursing school, whatever you were doing, newborn resuscitation. But I think this one is really exciting. Are you familiar with helping babies breathe? I really think it has big potential. Um, I'm one of the master trainers for this globally, and I think um, and we just did a training course with it. I think it's superb because what you do is you train the local people who do the village work. If 40% of your babies are born in the houses, they're not going to help you in the hospitals. And what they do is it comes as a neat little kit, and you blow it up. Um, and I think it's smarter to blow it up than put water in it. And then you learn how to resuscitate, but you're not intubating or anything like that. But the biggest strategy still they're reinforcing is about warmth, and dry the baby off, stimulate the baby, and very few need this. But it's a new strategy, and I think it's very helpful. Um, I'd be a bit cautious on this, because you know how at that first early I showed you about stillbirths? And babies died, and what I don't know right now is how many of the babies who would have died now will be resuscitated on this approach. And if this will lead to more kids with cerebral palsy or other dimensions. The other problem I see with this is once you teach somebody to start, and then if, how long do you keep going? Because at least you could say it was a stillbirth because nothing happened. But if you're doing it and they do something, so just to know, but I think it's a very good strategy, which I think can also make a big difference for us for the number of um, 
of this. Because otherwise, what happens is you see the baby like this, but then this is what happens later um, when they're growing up, um, all because they didn't get oxygen for potentially five minutes at birth. So, again, um, looking at the local people doing training can be a big difference uh, to make a difference. Prematurity, a big problem in America as well, and it not, does not have big, simple strategies. Um, you can, in the states, have such expense. You've got all the ICUs. Uh, but the um, kangaroo care developed in South America where they don't have kangaroos has seemed to make a difference. Keeping the baby warm keeps them surviving instead of an incubator. I think the other question there might be whether or not um, they um, – so that's another point as they go home. Also, there's a new use of the Internet with cell phones, cell phones, and you send out messages twice a week. And this is quite interesting for new technologies you might look at. Other resources to look at, Facts for Life from UNICEF in different languages. And so I ask you, what do these children have in common? all have equal rights. Does that make sense? So just be cautious there because they have to look at ability. There's teaching resources for that. Um, and they also may need extra special things like glasses or Braille or other resources. And this is in Australia. Can you imagine this little kid? He's now running on his legs, uh, which are made of steel. Uh, but they may need extra. There's a big push to take things into the community. Community-based rehabilitation is very important to get the community involved, often with volunteers, to make a difference to these kids and to take ownership. This is also helpful that you can download from UNICEF, um, from the State of the World's Children, and it also is in very neat little catch bites, and you might be simple to translate them. You also need inclusive development, not just a side, and this is a delightful one. So then, you know, they got the kid there. So then what you do is, and this shows you a Canadian kid that made a big problem for us a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago. This is the grade two class picture for the year. And this little kid has got a neuromuscular disorder. So the catch was they took his picture, and he looks like he's excluded. And the parents posted it, and it made a big deal. Even they thought they'd get the teacher fired. Uh, but then they said she was nice. So in summary, here, so you want them together in the middle, and then the kids, lovely, put them together. Um, so caring for our future, because every person deserves a chance to reach his or full potential. I think there's two books I would leave for you. One is um, one of the Bangladesh recently. It was one of the Bangladeshis who gave me this book to read because I knew what my interest was. This is by Diana and Victoria Webster called So Many Everests. The mother was a professor of English from Britain in Finland. She had prolonged labor. The child, who is Diana, um, she had cerebral palsy. They didn't want her to go to daycare. The daycare didn't want her. The school didn't want her. She was abused, not by the family who loved her, but, you know, she got a lot of negative comments. And worse was when she actually got accepted to medical school in Sweden. And when they found out she had a disability, they sent a, sent a questionnaire around to all her classmates to get her kicked out. But the classmates wouldn't do it. So she turned out to be the first casualty officer in Sweden. So I think it shows to us, like, you've got disabilities, 
therefore, for your strategies, encourage people because what is the outcome for that? And I think as Americans, you're probably familiar with Nick Vujicic. He's born without limbs in Australia. He doesn't have any legs or arms. And yet this man, he's got two university degrees. He's married. He's an international speaker. And he is amazing. So it goes to show us that when we look at how we can accomplish things through looking at each child, we can make a big difference. So hopefully that gave you some ideas. And I don't know if there's any questions or comments that any of you have. Bangladesh, not Bangladesh. Ma, dear, say you know the right things, yeah. And we developed, took the, the uh, uh, prosthesis from, uh, uh, from Jaipur, India, and we developed there in, uh, with local materials out of aluminum and, uh, and uh, retread rubber, and uh, we uh, took that and took to Bangladesh, and we had uh, 15 artificial limb camps where we fit children as well as adults with artificial limbs and they crawled in and walked out with the new legs. And it, it, it took them it took them a matter of about two days to get that new limb on and walking out. I recommend that if anybody wants to do work with children who have disabilities, especially with, with amputations, to try to get the jiper foot artificial limb into their country and work on it That is wonderful because I think when we're looking at the physiotherapists, the occupational therapists, they have made substantial contributions uh, to care like you're doing with the limbs, plus also training and teaching and providing support, encouragement. They are a superb part of the healthcare team. Yeah. Thank you. Anyone else have any comments or questions or experiences themselves? training to train uh, to train your parents to be able to uh, get these children to be able to walk with a walker get up and walk with and doing uh, these things and they, we saw improvement it's called the Bobath method okay so I've improved courage that thank you, you know, anybody can do it mm -hmm. yeah. Um, the question, just because we're being recorded, the question was about the vaccines, and I thought the same about Canada. Like, there's a lot of Canadians who do not get some of these vaccines, like human papillomavirus vaccine, because they can't afford it, and the government doesn't provide it. So I thought, gee, how come they can provide them for $3.50 a dose in certain countries, like most of the world, and yet we're paying so much? So there seems to be what they have is a two-tier schedule. And you know how there's a... Um, there's the Gates Foundation. They're very instrumental in things. Like if the country is already giving 80 or whatever the percent of vaccines is to the others, then they can then get in on this subsidized program to then be able to get more. And also, since it's the same vaccine, 
um, then, um, you know, some can, American people might want to get it. Just to know, though, that the pneumococcal vaccine they're using is 7-valent, and the one you're using in the States right now in Canada is 13-valent. Uh, but, you know, this was a strategy that in low-cost areas to reduce disease, um, therefore, we could make a big difference because then they won't need to use the healthcare system. And then they don't get disabled. So I think this is an amazing improvement. Um, just to know also for rotavirus, for diarrheal disease, for the human papillomavirus vaccine also, which you could argue about, and also for, for different things like that. It's a new initiative, which is very useful. Yeah. Any other comments or questions? That's wonderful that you're here today, and you've already been involved with this. Because if we start to look at what we can do by the actions we have, by the programs we have, and also the social determinants of health, not just that we're seeing them in the clinic, but, you know, like we talked about what the program is for the farming or the nutrition or the schools or the orphanages with HIV kids or the orphanages. Like, what can we do? And then also give them encouragement so that in their future they can see a life that is meaningful instead of being knocked out early. Um, I think that there is a huge... Um, a huge area that we can now take the leadership role in and also stimulate in many countries so that the government might then make tighter uh, regulations against environmental concerns or things of that nature as well. So we can be advocates as well as caring. I think we need to be doubles here. We need to prevent. But I think we have to be cautious in how we say our teaching for prevention because we don't want to make it so negative, like we want to prevent cerebral palsy. Well, let's be cautious here, because the person sitting beside us might have cerebral palsy. So there is the balance here. So I always phrase it that all of us have some disability. And therefore, like let's make sure, even if you didn't walk well, that you could get vitamin A so you don't get blind. Or if you have one problem, let's prevent another problem. So it makes it more inclusive. Um, and that's separate than all of the psychological problems that um, is more difficult um, in terms of violence, abuse, discrimination. And that's something I think that's much greater than any of us would be able to do as well. Yeah. So I think it's wonderful for you. Yes? If you only had a dollar and a half a day or a year to spend on vaccines, as If I, besides the ones that the government has done quite good for, we got the diphtheria, whooping cough, which doesn't seem to be so good. Diphtheria, whooping cough, tetanus, polio, for sure, and measles. Those ones, but those are all cheap. Those are like about $5. In a different one, I'm doing a talk for vaccines, actually, for China tomorrow. And, you know, it used to be in the States, too. It looks about, about $20. Now it's over $1,000. If I could add one new vaccine to what's there already, the one I personally would choose would be that pneumococcal vaccine. What I would have to be careful about, though, is to double-check. World Health Organization has laboratories and everything. They can tell you what the strains of pneumococcus or whatever are in that area to make sure they're the right things in the vaccine. Um, because then it didn't say, because, again, the good news in a, in a funny way for developing for vaccines is that it might be like $3, that would be $4.50 or $10 for the person, but that's for their life in a way. 
more than uh, looking at it per year. Does that make – so that's where I think the vaccines are good. Of that set right now, I think my first one would be the pneumococcal vaccine because of meningitis, pneumonia, ear infection, sinusitis, bacteremias. Um, I um, don't – at the moment, I wouldn't be pushing this human papillomavirus vaccine. In some areas, typhoid vaccine is probably more beneficial. So that's reduced price as well. The rotavirus vaccine – um, has also gone down quite cheap. Um, that's fine because if diarrheal diseases is a problem and you're going to introduce it. The government, see, the catch is the World Health Organization pushing certain things. Um, that's fine if they're going to provide and subsidize it. But if I still had a choice between rotavirus and pneumococcal, I would personally choose the pneumococcal vaccine because a lot of the causes of diarrheal diseases are not rotavirus in many places. It's only once potentially going to get it. Um, and so, therefore, that would be the one I would choose. Interestingly, just to know about the new initiative for the measles rubella, by adding the rubella to the measles component, it wasn't a big charge different. And I think that's a government plan to use the measles vaccine number one and then the measles rubella number two. But I didn't like the fact they're having to do two doses of measles vaccine because then obviously it doesn't work as good as they used to say so. Uh, but um, so that is how I would look at it if I had to be a promoter with only limited resources. Thank you so much for coming, and I wish you much success in all of your interesting works. Thank you.